0: Recorded live. Hello, this is William Sink and this is Chris DeGenia on It is Friday, June 17th, 2011. A couple of weeks ago on, on um, the Chris Degenia chat server, I had a conversation with, well, with a good friend, Bob, in Pennsylvania, and, and we were talking about Marriage, and we were talking about the fact that marriage is is um, consummated. It it happens. It occurs with the act of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. Ideally, under the law, the woman should, of course, be either a virgin or a widow. Under the law, the only people that the only women eligible for marriage, according to the law of God of Yahweh is a virgin or a widow and a reading of 1 corinthians chapter 7 surely substantiates that that is still the attitude of paul the apostle when he writes his letters to the corinthians and it should still be our attitude today but the law is our ideal and the world is imperfect today we're basically all deceived by that same serpent that Eve was deceived by in the Garden of Eden. We have allowed secular authorities to redefine marriage, and people feel that they could have sex outside of marriage and that they're not married, which is just simply wrong, according to the law of God. It's wrong in the eyes of God. There's no doubt about it. And and certain people have a serious disagreement with me on what we should do about it when we're in a, a marriage rela- relationship and find that that relationship began illegitimately. It began illegitimately because it's, well, it's practically impossible to find a marriable young woman today who, who's actually a virgin or, or a widow, right? Well well these people that they are um, attacking me thinking that they, they, they have the upper hand with scripture and on Monday on the open forum on Christagena.net I will prove that they don't know their scripture at all. And and um I will do that from, of course, the scripture. And and I'm really only gonna cite a couple of scriptures to do it. Yeah, you know, it's easy to take laws the, the laws out of context, in the Old Testament or the New. And, and it's also easy, and, and this is always incredible to me, that, you know, once somebody in Christian, once somebody that, that was a Judeo-Christian or an agnostic or whatever they were in, in their past life, well, once they, they awakened to Christian identity, And, and they learn the importance of an application of the law of God in our life, which is extremely important. What we should hold it as our ideal, and, and we should try to follow it whenever we can. I, I mean that there, there are times when, when we, being men, just what well, we're just going to fall short. That that's you know John the apostle says, whoever claims to be without sin makes God a liar. What well, We can't lie. We, we are all sinners, and, and we all fall short of the law at times, but the law is our ideal. Well, well, these people that learn identity and learn the importance of the law, all of a sudden they want to become instant Pharisees. Just add water. Now they're Pharisees. They want to rule over other people. They want to put their heads into other people's bedrooms and, and, and control those people. And and even Paul said to the Corinthians that he would not rule over their faith. If you study the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians, you'll find that Paul would not forgive a certain fornicator whom the assembly of Corinth decided to forgive. Paul did not excoriate them for deciding to forgive that fornicator. He did not rule over them and tell them that they could not forgive that fornicator. Rather, he told them that if they wanted to forgive the man, fine, but he, for his part, would hold out judgment on that and he would not forgive him. If we want to pretend to be Christians, we have to follow the examples of of Yahweh himself and Yahshua and, 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 and his apostles. I will prove on Monday beyond all doubt that these people... Who, who have a they've called me an adulterer? Well, which I was in, in a past life. That these people, and um, in, in my own past life, that these people are modern day Pharisees, and that they are wrong. And, and I look forward to doing that because I'm going to have a little fun with it. I, I just love Bible clowns that want to take things out of context and and make up their own laws and their own scriptures. It, it's just incredible. Aside from that, tonight we're going to cover Matthew chapter 12. I'm only going to cover Matthew chapter 12. I don't know how long this program is going to be. I expect this to take maybe an hour. The, the, um, I, I, Matthew 12 is, is kind of long, and Matthew 13 is real long, and I didn't want to split 13. I think it's important to cover 13 and, in one program, and I will, Yahweh willing, I will do that next week. Last week here, and, and, and I was in Virginia, and, and Clifton and I, I think, had had a little fun with the, with the program. Angels Chained in, 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 well, the Angels in Chains of Darkness, right? I, I enjoyed doing that with Clifton. And, and I want to bring up something. There's a, um, a, a fine young gentleman in California. He's a member of the um, Christoginia Forum. He goes by Aryan Sword or Arian Swords or something like that. I'm I'm sorry. I'm probably butchering his his, um, rendering of the name in the forum. And um, he brought to my attention a statement by Justin Martyr. And, and, um, you know, I'm sorry. I apologize. He brought to my attention a statement by Tertullian. Tertullian made a statement that – that, that the holy books teach us that a certain race of people descended from serpents. I don't have that handy. But, but Verbal Vandal brought to my attention a statement by Justin Martyr this week. And, and it's not really in a perfect context, but, but it's, it's in a dialogue of Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr, if you're not aware, was one of the earliest, um, Christian writers after the apostles. That there was the legitimate Clement, had some epistles, there's also a pseudo-Clement, yeah, you know, somebody make him believe they were Clement. But the legitimate Clement, and, and then Justin Martyr was probably around the middle of the 2nd century A.D. And um, he wrote, some of his writings are in dialogue form, you know, the old Socratic dialogue type of writing, and he wrote a dialogue with Trifo, who, who was supposedly a Judean and, and still practicing Judaism. Um and, and part of his dialogue with Trifo is is a discourse on whether or not the soul of man would actually see God. And, and Justin Motter makes an interesting exchange here in this dialogue, and, and I'll, I'll read it. The, the first person says, And what do those suffer who are judged to be unworthy of this spectacle? Meaning unworthy to see God. And, and the response is, they are imprisoned in the bodies of certain wild beasts. And this is their punishment. And, and that's talking about the souls of the rebels. And, and um, that, that goes along the lines but with something, you know, things, aspects of, of um, Jude and Peter and their comments on the beasts chained. Well, in chains of darkness that that Clifton and I were discussing last week, Justin Martyr believed that certain of the rebel spirits were imprisoned in the bodies of certain wild beasts. That now um, I wouldn't claim that as a scriptural authority. However, I would claim that it fully supports the, the interpretation we had of those passages by a very early Christian writer. And and I know that some of the early Christian writers also had a lot of what we would consider to be error, but in some other areas they did very well. And and I I believe that boils down to whether or not Yahweh wanted to reveal certain things at that time. And, And the identity of the children of Israel was certainly not to be revealed at that time, even though Paul was revealing it. Many, most of the world remained blind to it because it just wasn't supposed to be yet, and, and that shows us the the sovereignty of the will of Yahweh over the, the the minds and actions of men and thoughts of men, even when we think and and we do have free will and we choose to make our own mistakes. Yahweh is still sovereign, and it is His will that will be done. So that was um just the dialogue of Justin martyr with Trifo, T-R-Y-P-H-O, and that was chapter 4, and and that's where that exists. Okay, Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Yahshua had gone through the planted fields on the Sabbath, and his students hungered, and they began to pluck and to eat the grain. Then the Pharisees Seeing it, said to him, look, your students do that which is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. It's fully evident that the Pharisees had taken the laws of God to the extreme. And and I have an example of that. In the phrase that appears in in Acts 1, verse 12, where we see the phrase concerning the apostles that they, they returned to Jerusalem from from the Mount of Olives, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And and in the commentary of William Henry, he actually um, admits that what a Sabbath day's journey is, is, you know, is poorly defined by the rabbis. They're not in agreement with him. But with it some say it's a thousand paces some say it's 2000 paces some say it's seven furlongs some say it's eight furlongs william henry's commentary says that mount the mount of olives is about eight furlongs from jerusalem so that's about a sabbath day's journey it's it's pretty obvious but that's not from the old testament that that's something that that's an interpretation of the law imposed on people by the Pharisees. And, and that's one example of that, right? Well, well here's another one. That because well, well, this account we see in Matthew is paralleled in Mark 2 and in Luke chapter 6. The law which enabled the apostles to pick the grain from another man's field and to feed themselves is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, where it says, When thou comest into thy neighbor's vineyard, thou mayest eat grapes that thy fill of grapes at thine own pleasure, but thou shalt not put any in thy vessel. In other words, you're not going to harvest your brother's grapes and take them home, right? But if you're hungry, you have a right under the laws of God to eat some of your brother's or your neighbor's grapes. When thou comest into the standing corn or grain of thy neighbor, thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand and, and eat them but you may not move a sickle against your neighbor's standing grain. And and that's, you know, you can't harvest it and sell it on them, but if you're hungry and and you're walking by his field and you want to eat, what will the law permit you to do that? The Pharisees added to that law by saying that you can't do that on the Sabbath, but the, the law itself does not explicitly forbid that. The law which the Pharisees accused him by simply had to be the law of the Sabbath. It's found at Deuteronomy 5.14 and Exodus 20, verses 10 and 11. It says, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. I'm sorry, my file became corrupted. And on the seventh day he rested. Wherefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it or sanctified it that this is an example of the extreme to which the Jews took this commandment. And, and, and um, another example is found in Je- the Gospel of John, in chapter 5, verse 10, where Christ healed a man who was lame, and the Jews therefore said to him that was cured after Christ told him to take his bed and go. The Jews said, It is not lawful for you to carry your bed, On the Sabbath. Now, should the man have just left his bed there where he was healed and gone home and and left his bed behind? Uh, Of course, when you get back, you won't have a bed, right? And and it may be his only bed. And and this is a lame man. He, He was just healed after a long illness. He obviously couldn't work. He probably couldn't afford another bed. He wants to carry his bed home. Of course, you want to carry your bed home. Does that qualify as doing work that's forbidden on the Sabbath? I would think not. I think that the 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 preclusion against work on the Sabbath means work that you do on the other six days, work that you do for hire, work that you do on your farm, that kind of work you shouldn't do on a Sabbath. And and this is an example of Phariseeism, right, that that they want to rule over other men and force them into their narrow and, and in this case, extreme interpretation of the law of God. And, And we have those people still with us today. That I'll call them the three stooges of June 2nd. That the um, well, we have plenty of those people still with us today in identity. They basically desire to be Pharisees, and and with their their, their the knowledge of the law that they esteem themselves to have, they want to rule over their brother. Matthew 12 verse 3. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and those with him had hungered, how he entered into the house of Yahweh, and they ate the bread of presentation, the showbread, which was not lawful for him nor for those with him to eat, except only for the priests. The story Yahshua refers to is found in 1 Samuel, verses 21, I'm sorry, chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, and I will read it. Then came David, to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone, and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king has commanded me a business, and has said to me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee. David's referring to King Saul, right? And what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread under mine hand, meaning the bread that could be eaten by anybody, but there is hallowed bread that's the showbread sanctified for the temple. If the young men have kept themselves at least from women, and David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, meaning the young men have sanctified. And the bread is in a manner common, yet yeah, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. David's rationalizing why he should be allowed to eat the bread. He's hungry, and his men are hungry. That that's just the way it is. So the priest gave him the hollowed bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread that was taken from before Yahweh to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. And according to the law, it's specific in the law that only the priests can eat this bread. So this priest agreed with David, who hungered, that he can have the bread to eat with his men. That's a violation of the law. And, and um. From a practical viewpoint, and, and uh, well, well, I'll let Christ answer it first. Matthew 12, verse 5. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbaths the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, yet they are guiltless? Now I say to you that a greater than the temple is here, meaning himself. He's calling himself greater than the temple, and, and that must have really upset the Jews, But if you had known why it is mercy I desire and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. In other words, even though David broke the letter of the law, Christ considered him to be guiltless because he was hungry. I mean, and there was nothing else to eat, and his men were hungry, and and they were traveling surreptitiously, and they had to eat. Christ, even though they broke the letter of the law, Christ called them guiltless. From a practical viewpoint, it is also observed that the priests in the temple, as Christ just explained, they work on the Sabbath. They labor on the Sabbath in order to accomplish what is necessary to fill the rituals. So they themselves violate the letter of the law. The letter of the law is violated by the priests who are sworn to uphold the law. So it's obvious from from these predicaments that the letter of the law is not neat for every situation. And therefore, we can see, and, and this is highly observable in history and in the Bible, that no legislation could ever be perfect in itself, not even the laws which God gave to men. That is why... Legislation in the hands of man forever continues to grow, and, and men dispute over it. Men dispute over it all the time, over what the laws of God mean. But with the legislation of God, one's brother, as Christ here has demonstrated, one's brother should be treated with mercy when he is in a difficult situation position and violates the letter of the law. There is no way that a law could be made that a man, uh, of course God could make a perfect law. He's God. But there's no way that God could make a perfect law that a feeble-minded man could know well enough because it would be so voluminous covering every situation covering every possible situation that might arise, it would be so voluminous that no man would ever be able to master it. What we'd end up with is an IRS code. Well, Yahweh is not about writing an IRS code. Yahweh gave us a law that he deemed sufficient for us, knowing that it wouldn't cover every single situation. So Christ says, it's mercy I seek and not sacrifice. When we see that a man is in dire straits, the letter of the law may be violated to help that man. That, that's very clear. And and Yahshua is actually quoting Hosea 6.6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. We will see this again again. And in, the, in the subsequent verses of this chapter. Verse 8, For the Son of Man is Prince of the Sabbath. Of course, Yahweh created the Sabbath, so he is its Lord and not the other way around. This statement must really vex the Jews, because here, Yahshua asserts himself to be Yahweh. Yahshua asserts himself to be greater than the temple. Yahshua inserts, asserts himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. At Mark 2.27, Yahshua is recording as having said that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Verse 9. And passing over from there, he came into their assembly hall, and behold, a man having a withered hand. And they questioned him, saying, So is it lawful to heal on the Sabbaths that they may accuse him? But he said to them, What man shall there be from among you who shall have one sheep? And if this should fall into a pit on the Sabbath, he would not take hold and raise it. So how much better is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath even if it violates the letter of the law. Then he says to the man, Extend your hand. And he extended it, and it had been restored to health as the other one. Then departing, the Pharisees took counsel against him how they could kill him. Here I will quote one Dead Sea Scrolls passage, which proves that the sect at Qumran was not a Christian sect, and it also demonstrates for us the mentality of the people at the time. In a country which was dominated by pharisaical thought, from the scroll designated 4Q271, fragment 5, column 1, a portion of what is commonly known as the Damascus, the Damascus document, it says, quote, no one should help an animal give birth on the Sabbath day, contrary to the, to the profession of Christ, right? These people are very pharisaical. And, it, and if the animal is fallen into a well or a pit, he should not take it out on the Sabbath And any man, any living man who falls into a place of water or a well, no one should take him out with a ladder or a rope or a utensil. Well, Words similar to Matthew 12:9 through 13 are also found in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, and we see that Yahweh would surely want us to help even an animal out of a well or a pit on the Sabbath, but especially a man. The Pharisees as well as the Qumran sect. Now, the Qumran sect, they were not Pharisees. They actually hated the the Pharisees. They considered the Pharisees to be sellouts and agents for Rome, and and that's in their writing, right? The Pharisees and the Qumran sect both judged men according to their own self-righteousness, and they did not judge men with mercy, Here we see that Yahweh despises their judgment. Do not judge your brother self-righteously. Seek first to understand his troubles, to understand his predicament, and to help him. You don't leave a man in a well on the Sabbath. Sorry, pal, be back tomorrow. (laughs) That's absolutely terrible. (laughs) The Pharisees wanted to kill Christ. Because he made manifest their hypocrisy and threatened the perception of authority that they had in the eyes of the people. The Pharisees did not care about righteousness. They surely didn't care about mercy. They only cared about their own power. The plot against Christ begins to culminate in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 12 verse 15 but knowing it, Yahshua withdrew from there, knowing that they wanted to kill him. And then he followed him, and he healed them all. And he admonished them that they should not make him manifest in order that that which was spoken through the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled, saying, Behold my son, whom I have chosen, my beloved who has pleased my soul. I shall set my spirit upon him, and he shall announce judgment to the nations. He shall neither quarrel nor cry out, nor shall one hear his voice in the streets. A crushed reed he shall not break, and a smoldering cord he shall not clench, until he should issue judgment and victory, and in his name shall the nations have hope. In other words, he personally won't um, shake things up and, and and put anything down, and until he issues judgment in victory, that, that's his second return, right? And in his name shall the nations have hope. Christ did not want attention, yet he also wanted the people to have the opportunity to understand that he was indeed the Messiah promised by Yahweh. So we shall see in verse 23 that all the crowds were astonished and said, could this man be the son of David? The words of verses 18 to 21 seem to quote Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, but they do not quote it precisely. They don't precisely follow the translations that we have today, anyway. That may be due to the prophecy having a double meaning. In one aspect, it seems to apply to the Israelites going off into captivity, the Isles of the West, who are being addressed in this section of Isaiah. And in another aspect, it is a messianic prophecy looking forward to the Christ. And for that reason, I'm going to read, I'm going to, I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, from the King James and from the Septuagint, so that we see the difference here. From the King James Behold my servant whom I uphold. So it's already a a departure from what we see in, in the New Testament, right? Where it says, Behold my son whom I have chosen. Mine elect in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to, well, the King James has to the Gentiles, which should certainly read to the nations. He shall not cry nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he shall not break, and the smoking flax he shall not quench. He shall bring forth judgment of the truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall await for his law. Now that seems like it could be talking about either the children of Israel going into dispersion, my servant whom... Mine elect, in whom my soul delights, could could be Jacob, our father, right? Let's see the Septuagint translation of the same verses. Jacob is my servant. I will help him. Israel is my chosen. My soul has accepted him. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles or the nations, he shall not cry nor lift up his voice, nor shall his voice be heard without. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, but he shall bring forth judgment to truth. He shall shine out and shall not be discouraged until he has set judgment on the earth, and in his name the nations shall trust. So here we have a case, and, and this is important. Because the Septuagint follows, for the most part, the New Testament quotes of the Old Testament follow the Septuagint, but this is one case where they certainly depart from the Septuagint, or at least from the Septuagint manuscripts which we have today, because the Septuagint translators clearly thought. And, and Isaiah, I, I read the King James Isaiah 42 the first four verses, to be a double, meaning it can point to Israel going off into dispersion, and it also points ahead to Christ. And the apostles certainly, and Christ himself certainly, according to Matthew 12 here, interpreted Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, as being a prophecy of Christ. But the Septuagint translators interpreted it as talking about Jacob going off into the Assyrian captivity, into the dispersion to the Isles of the West. So here we see a serious difference in the interpretation of the ancient Hebrew between Christ and the apostles and the Septuagint. So that should be noted. And and that should be noted because most of the time, where the apostles quote the Old Testament, they do agree with the Septuagint, but here they do not. Matthew 12, verse 22. Then a blind and mute man possessed by a demon had been brought to him, to Christ, and he healed him, even for the mute to speak and to see. And all the crowds were astonished and said, could this man be the son of David? The people must have been referring to the messianic prophecies found in Isaiah chapters 9 and 11. And here I shall read them in part. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, the people understood their Messiah to be a descendant of David. And upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. Isaiah 11, 1 through 4. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Again, we see a descendant of David. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh, and shall make him quick of understanding in the fear of Yahweh. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove repro- with equity the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. The people understood their Messiah to be a descendant of David from at least from those two verses. Matthew 12, verse 24. And hearing the Pharisees said, This This man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. But knowing their reasonings, he, meaning Yahshua, said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is desolate, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan against himself, he is divided. How shall his kingdom stand? We may be able to take this as an indicator of when mystery Babylon may finally fall, when we see the enemies of God divided against themselves. Therefore, we should be watchful. Verse 27, And if I by Beelzebu cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they shall be your judges. And they shall be. And and we see in the Acts, later in in the accounts of Acts, we see Paul describe some wandering Jews who who were casting out or attempting to exorcise demons. And and I have in my translation an issue with that because to exorcise actually means to make appeals to and exhort. And I don't think, and and I know the Catholic Church uses that word, exorcise. E-X-O-R-C-I-S-E, that and to, to describe the casting out of demons only. But I really think that the wandering Jews didn't want to cast out the demons. I really think they were exhorting. That's what the Greek word means. They were summoning the demons in order that they could gain some advantage. And, and we see again in the book of Acts, we see... Um, the, the man in Greece was the woman
1: that, that, can,
0: that, that can basically um, tell people's fortunes, tell the future, prognosticate, because she had the spirit of the python, and two men were making a lot of money from her, and Paul cast that spirit out, and the two men became very upset with Paul and had him arrested, because they cost him, Paul cost them their living. And, and that's a, an example of the Jews really wanting to control the people that were possessed by demons so they could make money off of them. And that, that's how I see the, the account in Acts. But here Christ simply says, by whom do your sons cast them out? And and perhaps they were making money that way, too. It, it's We really don't have enough um, evidence to tell that but it seems to me that if the the children of the Pharisees are doing anything that appears to be righteous, they're probably really doing it for a profit, and we'll see that later also. Well, where Christ says, for this reason they shall be your judges, talking about the children of the Pharisees, the sons of the Pharisees, and and I, I believe they shall indeed be for the people of Judea who at a later time observed and supported the priests at the trial of Yahshua, they exclaimed that his blood be on us and our children. When the day comes, those children surely will curse their fathers. That There should be no doubt. Now, there was a difference in the earliest manuscripts, And whether the spelling of this idol's name is Beelzebub, that's the popular spelling, is Beelzebub or Beelzebul. The oldest of the great Uncial manuscripts, the Codexes um, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, they're the most reliable, even though they don't always agree with each other. They both here agree that the name should be Beelzebul, and, and that's why I use that term. Either way, the meaning of the word is equally repulsive because according to Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, Baal-zebub, which is where we get Beelzebub from, that means Lord of Flies. And, and that should give you some insight. And when, when I was a child in the 70s, there was a book that was very popular called Lord of the Flies, well, well, that I, I never read the book, but the title comes from the word Beelzebub, and, and that's a point of interest if anybody's ever read that book. It, it was popular around nineteen seventy-two, three, four, and there. The um the the, the word Baozebul is Lord of dung, so that's what the Pharisees are saying that Christ casts out demons. Christ was casting out demons by. In, or in the name of the Lord of Dung. So so that's a, a pretty serious um pretty serious slander right there. Matthew twelve verse twenty eight Christ responds, but if by the Spirit of Yahweh I cast out demons, then the kingdom of Yahweh has overtaken you. This is important. If these were his people Christ would not have Christ would not have asserted that the kingdom of Yahweh has overtaken them because they would have had every expectation being his people to be a part of that kingdom. In truth, Christ certainly knew that these were not his people. They had no expectation in his kingdom. They feared it. When 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 the um Remember back in Matthew chapter 2, that when the court of Herod heard about the birth of the Messiah, all of Jerusalem trembled. They feared the coming of the promised kingdom of God. Yahshua told them, as it is recorded in John chapter 10, that you believe not because you are not my sheep. They weren't his people. Here he tells them that, again, that they're not his people. He says, the kingdom of Yahweh has overtaken you. The King James Version here has that the kingdom of Yahweh has come unto you. That's a very poor rendering of the verb. The verb is fasano and Liddell and Scott define that verb as to come first or before others, to overtake, or to outstrip. In the passive, it means to be overtaken, which is what we see here. There are many ways in Greek to say come unto, but with the use of this particular verb, that is certainly not the inference here. The King James translation here is very bad. This morning, I looked at this passage just for curiosity's sake. I looked up this passage on, on the Internet, and, and just to get it, because I didn't feel like going through every version in Bible works, that, that can be a hassle. When I looked it up on the Internet, I found that the NET, the New English Translation, translates this passage, then the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. And that's also a good translation and agrees with my own rendering in the Christoginian New Testament, the NAS and the King James versions both fall very short here because they've actually changed the meaning of this verb and said, come unto you or come upon you. That's not what Christ is saying. Maybe they couldn't imagine that these Pharisees were not his people, so they made a very weak translation of the verb. But Christ is saying that the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of God, has overtaken you, and they were never his people. Matthew 12, verse 29, and this goes hand in hand with verse 28. Now, how is one able to enter into the house of the strong man and plunder his equipment, or his goods, as he could not first bind the strong man? And then he shall plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he not gathering with me scatters. I'm not going to comment on this passage here. I'm going to rather let Clifton Emma Heiser comment on it by quoting from his paper, Biblical Canaanites, who are they? At the end of that paper, Clifton has a section, a subsection called The Binding of the Strong Man. And I will quote There seems to be an agreement among the many commentaries that Satan is the strong man, and Clifton writes, to which I must agree, but I may have just a little different view on it. The best passage. On this subject is found at Luke chapter eleven, verses twenty-one through twenty-three. But when a, st- I'm sorry, when a strong man armed keeps his palace, his goods are at peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he takes from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divides his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters. If therefore the strong man is Satan, then Satan is the Canaanite bad, fig Jew. While there were still a few poor, pure-blooded Judahites and Benjaminites, and I must add Levites, and the smattering from the other tribes in Judea at the time of Joshua Christ, by and large, the Edomite-Canaanite element had taken over the government and temple offices and had Rome inclining to their whims on the other hand Joshua Christ is the stronger than he to overcome him Satan and because the Romans were by and large Israelites of the house of Zara Judah the twin brother of Christ's own household of Phares Judah the Romans became in essence Christ's seat to tread on Satan as Paul had predicted in Romans 1620. I'm sorry, I lost my place. The Romans even allowed a short period for the Christians to leave Judea before the treading took place, leaving only the Satanic Canaanite Jews to receive the iron feet of Rome, for the most part. So Rome represented Christ as the stronger than he to bind the strong man, Satan, which Josephus describes in such great detail. Rome was not, and and Clifton's referring to Josephus' descriptions of the Roman destruction of Judea and Jerusalem. Rome was not out of place by playing this part as a near relative is needed as a revenger of blood, citing Numbers 35, verses 16 through 19. How many are there that know the founding families including the Julian clan of the Caesars of Rome, descended from the Trojans, who in turn descended from Zara Judah. John, in his, in his Revelation, speaks of this very same binding of the strong man in a little different allegorical language at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, where he says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Once we understand that John three three says, born from above rather than born again, we can begin to comprehend that we white Israelites are of a heavenly race. Therefore, it is not out of place for John to refer to the Roman descendants of Zara as angels, which in the Hebrew is Elohim, Elohim, and can mean judges, angels, or the Almighty himself. It's often Elohim. So the Roman heavenly angels bound the strong man Satan, sometimes also called the serpent, the dragon, or the devil, And the Canaanite bad fig Jews are devils in shoe leather. Shoe leather. And the bottomless pit represents the ghettos to which they were restricted, just what the Canaanites deserved. Some will argue, and I'm still quoting Clifton, some will argue that this can only apply to the Sephardic line of Jews and that the Ashkenazi line are a different people, but if one will do a little checking he will find that, anthropologically speaking, the Ashkenazi Jews have Hittite features, thus they are Canaanites, just like Esau's wives. For example, just take a good look at Barbara Streisand. In doing so, one is looking at the Hittite nose and all. Yes, the Ashkenazi are Canaanites also. I have to interject here that, you know, a lot of Edomites were able to marry in, to intermarry with the Khazars once they were converted to Judaism. and and a lot of people don't understand that intermarriage, it it definitely happened. Many Edomites had left the Byzantine Empire, went into Khazaria. Many Edomites had left the the old city of Babylon and went into Khazaria and began to intermarry with the formerly white Khazars. And, And there was a Turkish admixture in there also, but at one time they were white and once they converted them to Judaism, for, for the last 1,300 years, they've been intermarrying with them. I don't think there are too many Khazars that don't have Edomite, Canaanite blood. Uh, and I would be surprised at each one, just, just from from an, an observation of, of their history. Well, John said, to get back to Clifton, well, John said at Revelation Chapter 20, verse 2, that Satan would be bound for a thousand years, and it did happen. But everyone is looking for the binding of the satanic Canaanites way off in some indefinite future. While Satan collectively has already been bound and loosed from the ghettos, and has become the world's banker of today, and as verse 3 indicates, has gone forth to deceive the nations, they certainly have, And their seat of government is the so-called United Nations. That's the seat of their civil government. Today, all ten planks of the Canaanite Karl Marx Manifesto are alive and well in nearly every country of the world. One might call them Satan's Ten Commandments. We definitely have all ten of them here. One, abolition of private property. Two, heavy progressive income tax. Three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. We have a, a 50% tax is just about effects that here. Four, confiscation of land. Five, central bank. Six, government control of communications and transportation. Seven, government ownership of factories and agriculture. Today, we don't see that outright because we're blind to it. But the government, through all its agencies, regulations, and taxes, basically controls all of our factories and agriculture. And, and well, the factories we have left. Eight, government control of labor. Yes, they do. Nine, corporate farms, regional planning. Ten, government control of education. To a great degree, it's not exactly total, but to a great degree, every one of those communist Manifesto planks are in full effect here. And if you don't believe me, try opening a factory without the EPA and OSHA and the IRS and the SEC all breathing down your neck. Quisting goes on. Try and fight any one of these Canaanite satanic planks and one will find himself behind bars. Communism was Canaanite Jewish from the very get-go, but today they call it democracy, and that's exactly true. One could debate at length just when the Canaanite Satanic Jews were bound in their bottomless pit. I would say that happened after Rome fully accepted Christianity and and basically excoriated the Jews, and, and that was about 500 A.D., or thereabouts, But we have a better idea when they were loosed. It was the year of 1776 that the Canaanite Jews would organize their money power into an organization known as the Illuminati. Yes, that was an important part of it. And from the Illuminati would come the Council on Foreign Relations and later the Trilateral Commission. From these organizations, the Canaanite Jews control all monetary, political, and religious activity. Yes, they do promoting Satan's agenda for all-out racial miscegenation in the name of Christianity. Some might argue that Satan's binding is to happen in a so-called future millennium, but Revelation 20 verse 4 indicates that Satan made his appearance amid the French Revolution with the beheading of souls through the use of the guillotine. Thus, shortly after the satanic Canaanites gained economic power, off came the heads. That, that's a pattern of satanic rule. Yes, it is. Verse 31 of Matthew 12. For this reason I say to you, every error in blasphemy shall be remitted for men. But blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or, or blasphemy of the Spirit, I'm sorry, shall not be remitted. And remitted means paid or forgiven, right? And whoever should speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be remitted for him. But whoever should speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be remitted for him, neither in this age nor in that which is coming. As I was saying before, there are people who claim to be Christian identists, who deny the words of Paul, where Paul says that all Israel shall be saved, who deny the words of Isaiah, where Isaiah says, Isaiah wrote, Yahweh's promise that all the seed of Israel shall be justified. All the seed, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. That's scripture. These are those same Pharisees, the same people denying these words, are those same Pharisees who want to throw their own Israelite brethren into the lake of fire while they themselves they themselves do such things as engage in usury, engage in trading Jewish securities or in enriching Negroes in business. And yes they do it. They need to extract the beans from their own eyes Here Christ says, and I will quote the King James Version, that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost or Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And I would say that Christ only meant Israelite men, because he only came for Israel. Only Israel is under the law. The Greek word hagios in the biblical context means separated and devoted to the purposes of God. This is the word translated holy here in the phrase Holy Spirit in the King James Version. We can see some passages found in the Bible at Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 and 6. In 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 53. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that this mandate has never changed. In the Old Testament, the word holy comes from the Hebrew word kodesh. Strong's number 6944, which primarily means apartness. The children of Israel were to be holy and separate holy and apart from all the other people the phrase found in the old testament psalm 51 51:11 and isaiah 63 verses 10 and 11 is another example the phrase is sound where it talks where it mentions holy spirit from these passages, so we see that Holy Spirit is an idea that exists in the Old Testament, right? From these passages, Psalm fifty-one, eleven, and Isaiah 63, verses 10 and 11, it seems to refer to both the presence of the Spirit of God, which is how it's used in, in the Psalm 51, And also the spirit which God bestowed upon Adamic man, which is how it's used in Isaiah 63. This is what Christ and the apostles refer to when they tell us that we are not of the world. And as John explains in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, that those who are not of the Adamic race have indeed been created by the world, Eli. Go read that chapter. And not by God. We are from God. They are from of the world. John's message in his context is for the children of Israel exclusively. And in that epistle, John also mentions a sin which is unto death, where he says at 1 John 5.16, and I'll read it again from the King James. If any man sees his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, meaning to ask in prayer, and he, meaning God, shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, for this reason, that Israel was to be holy and separate, that that spirit which we receive from God, Isaiah chapter 63, 10 and 11, was a holy spirit, that there is a sin unto death, and as John explains, that we are from God, and the other people who are not us are from the world. For that reason, I believe the, the blasphemy of the spirit or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the promotion of integration and race mixing. The promotion of integration and race mixing is blasphemy of the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. When you go around teaching people to integrate with the other people, you're violating the idea of that hagios numa that we are to be separated and devoted to God. You're violating that. And God told Israel that that's what they are. So if you violate that, you promote integration and race mixing, you're trying to actively destroy that idea of sanctity and separateness. So the promotion of integration and race mixing is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and it is also the sin unto death. The sin causes the death of the Adamic race, which is in turn an act of war against that spirit which God bestowed upon the Adamic man. Matthew twelve verse thirty three Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree rotten, and its fruit is rotten. From of the tree, from of the fruit, the tree is known. The tree represents a family tree. The word is often used as an allegory for race. In Scripture, we see it in Genesis chapter two. We see it all the way through to Revelation chapter 22. Of course, the famous example is in Ezekiel chapter 31, where the Assyrian is called a cedar in Lebanon. And in Ezekiel 31 verse 8, it says that, quote, The cedars in the garden of God could not hide him. The fir trees were not like his bows, and the chestnut trees were not like his branches, nor any tree in the garden of God was like unto him in his beauty. Here we see that the trees are used allegorically of Adamic families, and the garden of God is a metaphor for the oikumene, the dwelling place of Adam kind, when Ezekiel wrote. Yet there are also bad trees. And here we see that they can only produce... Bad fruit. Do not ever expect a bad tree to produce good fruit. Whoever insists that that can happen is a liar. John the Baptist professed, as we have already read in Matthew chapter 3, that now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. In other words, the trees have already been judged. Therefore, every tree which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down. Those trees don't have a choice whether or not they want to bring forth good fruit. Bad trees can't bring forth good fruit, and good trees can't bring forth bad fruit. And that's the words of Christ. Don't try, if you come from a good tree, you better not be trying to throw your brother in the fire, because the words of Christ tell us that a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. Yes, we can act badly at times, but in the eyes of God, we are not bad fruit. John says that the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Past tense. It's already done. The trees are already judged. Therefore, every tree is which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Every person of every family, not written in the book of life, the gospel of God, shall indeed be cast into the lake of fire. I would challenge the frauds who want to save the world to find those born of the world to find where they are written into the book of life. They're not. Only the children of Adam are written into the book of life. Matthew 12, verse 34. Offspring of vipers. Offspring of vipers. That's important. How are you able to speak good things being evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Christ is calling his enemies offspring of vipers. The word is genema in Greek. According to Liddell and Scott, genema primarily means that which is produced or born, a child. Contrary to Judeo-Christian deception, The word genema indicates their parentage and not their attitudes. Christ is telling these Pharisees that their parents were vipers. Their parents weren't even there, for the most part. Their parents weren't even there, and he's calling their parents vipers. That slur is towards their parents. When somebody calls you a son of a bitch, that's a slur, that's a slander directed at your mother. Christ is calling these people offspring of vipers. That's a slander directed at their parents. However, from the mouth of Christ, it's not a slander. He's simply telling A simple fact. He's simply giving them the facts. They are the offspring of the serpent, the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. It's not a philosophical statement. He's making a genetic statement. He's telling them their parents are vipers. They are not the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15. Matthew 12, verse 35. The good man from out of the good treasure issues good things, and the wicked man from out of wicked treasure issues wicked things. Even if an evil man says something which appears to be good, God knows his motives better than men know his motives. Verse 36. Now I say to you that every idle word which men shall speak, they shall give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. We should remember this when we seek to condemn our brethren. Because we shall all be judged With the judgment by which we have judged them, as Christ says in Matthew chapter seven verse two, for with what judgment you judge ye shall be judged, and with what measure you meet or you mete you you hand out, it shall be measured to you again. Verse thirty eight. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees replied to him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But replying, he said to them, A wicked and adulterous race seeks a sign. The word is genos. It means race. And a sign shall not be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, thusly, Shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights? And he was. We'll discuss that when we get to the end of Matthew, though. They had already seen a sign. They had already seen many signs. In all of those people which Christ healed, and in all of those demons which he expelled. Yet they still did not believe him. They They demanded to see more, probably so they had more to accuse him of. Instead, they really sought to ridicule him, telling him that he cast out demons by the God of dung. Christ knew that no matter what he did, these people were not going to believe him. So at the end of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Christ exclaims, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 16, verse 31, that if... If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. In other words, they're going to get the sign of Jonah, but they're not going to believe that either. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this race, and they shall condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. There are people in Christian identity ignorant of Scripture who insist that Jonah must have went to preach to Israelites in Nineveh. That insistence, and I've heard it often, is absurd. We find Jonah mentioned in two kings... Chapter 14, verse 25, and in that verse it states that he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the Sea of the Plain, according to the word of Yahweh God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amateh, the prophet, which was of Gath Hefer. That's a reference to the prophet Jonah. And as an aside, Gath Heifer was in Galilee, and that makes the Pharisees liar because they said that no prophet comes from Galilee, right? Well, they don't know their scripture. The reference in 2 Kings 14.25 is a reference to the fulfillment of a prophecy which occurred, the fulfillment occurred in the reign of the second king, Jeroboam of Israel. He ruled approximately 793 to 753 B.C., many years before the deportation of the Israelites, which happened for the most part from 722 to 676 B.C. Jonah had evidently, at a a prior time, prophesied that the land taken by the Syrians I believe that's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 13, would be restored to Israel. And we see here that it was. So Jonah prophesied long before any of the children of Israel could have inhabited Nineveh in significant numbers, as we find mentioned later in the book of Tobit and in other ancient records. Jonah could not have been in Nineveh when there were large numbers of Israelites in Nineveh. Jonah prophesied long before that. 2 Kings 14.25. The truth of the matter is that the first promise of salvation comes to the entire Adamic race, and it is given in Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 2 through 24 where it says and Yahweh God said behold the man has become as one of us to know good and evil and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever the tree of life is Christ and his body i am the vine you are the branches Therefore, Yahweh God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to kill the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, portal, and the flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Having this promise that we find in Genesis, we see that the rest of our race shall also be in the resurrection, even though they are not Israelites and do not have that special relationship with God that Israel has. There's a second witness to this in the epistle of Peter. Peter in his epistle says that Christ went to preach the gospel to the spirits in prison. Meaning, and Peter explains, that that is those Adamic people who were destroyed in the flood of Noah. None of those people were Israelites either, right? Having been born long before Abraham. The men of Nineveh were Assyrians. They descended from Asher. The Asher, not the Asher of the tribe of Asher, A-S-H-E-R, the Asher of Genesis chapter 10, verse 22, generally spelled A-S-S-H-U-R. Asher was the brother of Arphaxad, and from Arphaxad later descended the Hebrews. Verse 42. The queen of the south shall be raised in the judgment with this race and shall condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. This reference is certainly to the queen of Sheba, who visited Solomon in Jerusalem as related in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Note that in 1 Kings chapter 10, it says that this woman was shown all of Solomon's house and riches, but she was not taken to the temple. Of the temple, she was shown only Solomon's ascent by which he went up into the house of Yahweh. That's what 1 Kings says. Only Israelites could enter the temple, so she only got to see the staircase. The Queen of Sheba was also a white Adamic woman. Sheba appears to be a kingdom uncovered by archaeologists, which is located in what is now Yemen, on the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula. Of course, the present-day inhabitants of the area are mixed-race Arabs and not Adamites. They are not From Sheba. Sheba was either of Ham or of Shem, since the name is found twice. It's found in Genesis chapter 10, verse 7, of the Sheba who was a son of Cush, the son of Ham. And it's found in Genesis chapter 10, verse 28, where another Sheba was a son of Joktan, the brother of Peleg, and the son of Eber, the Hebrew. Which Sheba, this is, can be argued. However, on a grand scale of things, it is also relatively immaterial. Let me make a side note, because I didn't address it in my notes, that where Christ says that the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south shall be raised in the judgment with this race, I believe that Christ is basically speaking about perhaps not the Edomite Pharisees and leaders, perhaps he's speaking about the general people of Judea who were going along with and supporting them. It's hard for me to determine. But the Edomites are certainly going to be condemned, so perhaps he references them. Now, whether they actually rise in the judgment before they're thrown in the lake of fire. When they're already dead, perhaps that's a misunderstanding on our part. But maybe those Edomites which are here alive at the time of the judgment, before they are cast in the lake of fire, they will certainly be condemned. And I am certain that's who Christ is pointing to. That's who he's speaking about. Time will tell. Verse 43, now when the unclean spirit departs from a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finds it not. Then it says, I shall return to my house from where I departed. And coming finds it vacant, swept clean and ornamented. Then it goes and takes to itself seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and entering in dwells there, and the ends of that man become worse than the beginnings, we shall it be also with this wicked race. There's a lot of controversy, generally, concerning interpretations of this parable. Yes, it is a parable. An allegory which is not quite to be taken literally. I believe that these verses refer to what preceded. It is not a fresh or disconnected thought. What what, What this passage is saying is that those who deny Christ, even if there are times when they seem to do good, setting their house in order, the good Jew, if you will, They're spoken of once in a while. When there are times that they seem to do good and set their house in order, yet they shall in the end do eight times worse, eight times more wickedly than they did at the first. So we can never trust them. If a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, then there is no such thing as a good Edomite. A good Jew... That phrase is an oxymoron, since there cannot be a good antichrist. It's just not possible. Verse 48. Yet, while he, while he yet spoke to the crowds, behold, his mother and brethren stood outside, seeking to speak with him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brethren stand outside, seeking to speak with you. But replying, he said to him, speaking, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And extending his hand over his students, he said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For he who would do the will of my Father who is in the heavens, he is my brother and sister and mother. So much for Roman Catholic Mary worship, right? Just because a person has the honor of being chosen by God for a particular purpose in life does not make that person special above the rest of God's people. It is obvious that Yahshua certainly did not exalt his earthly mother above others. You know, the Catholics also deny the plain meaning of the phrase, your brethren. Instead, they promote a lie concerning Mary's alleged perpetual virginity. Yet, here in this passage, and in several other New Testament passages, it is quite clear that Joshua had earthly siblings through his mother Mary. And she is often found with them, as she is in this passage here. After Joshua himself was born, he being the firstborn, Mary must have had other children by her earthly husband, Joseph. Yet if these were only brethren in the faith, as the Catholics would would claim, then the phrase would be meaningless here, since the person speaking said to him, your brethren, when there were obviously a multitude of people of the faith present who were not considered to be his brethren, in that same fashion. So the Catholics, they just really pervert the truth when it comes to this verse. The idea of brothers and sisters who are so only in the faith alone is a false idea, which is meant to diminish the racial meaning of the words as they are used in the Bible a brother or a sister can only, in its original Greek meaning, be one of the same family. And while in the, in the New Testament, <clears throat> the writers often used the words brother and sister in a somewhat wider sense than the Greeks did, they used it to encompass all members of the tribe's nations. They didn't add anybody else to the meaning of the words, ever. And the word, even though it's used in that sense by the New Testament writers, the word still cannot be stripped of its basic familial meaning. Furthermore, the Christian faith is by definition the faith belonging to those to whom the covenants belong. And therefore, a brother or a sister in the faith can only include Israelites, since by the definition of the faith, all others are excluded The covenants being made only with Israel. However, these had to be Christ's literal maternal brothers, brethren. And if they weren't, then the man was making no sense at all. He should have said, our brothers and sisters. Or he should have said nothing. Just your mother is out standing at a door, calling upon you. Because then everybody in the room would have been Christ's brethren. So the words mean nothing, according to the Catholic interpretation. But according to a contextual, correct interpretation, Christ had siblings by Mary. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. The Catholics have made Mary an idol. And it's absolutely clear from Scripture. Well, that's it for tonight. That's Matthew chapter 12. And I'll be back here next week, Yahweh willing, with Matthew chapter 13. Thank you for listening and praise Yahweh. Good night.